Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Are demons real? If so, do they have to be physical? Are they conjured spirits that control us, torment us and bend us to their will? Today I have two stories of haunted minds with disturbing outcomes, the struggle with reality and the prison of fear mental illness can bring to one's mind are all on show in both your tales today. Your first story by Bloody Spaghetti is titled Since When Do Mannequins Bleed? And your second story today is Barricade by Joseph.K. Both very well written and very creepy. Turn off the lights, turn up the sound and be still for they may still hear you. Since when do mannequins bleed? That bastard Manny woke me up again in the middle of the night. I absolutely hate it when he does this. This time, I guess, he had a good reason to wake me up like that. I just wish he wasn't an asshole about it. Manny and I, we have a strange relationship, I'd say. Even our meeting was weird. He just appeared at my place one day. He was there, sitting on my couch reading my copy of Dan Brown's Angels and Demons. I'll admit it this much, his appearance at my place wasn't random at all. I can swear I've seen him admiring me from a distance for weeks before our meeting. It's hard to miss the guy. He really sticks out in a crowd, given his odd-looking head. Manny's appearance is almost unremarkable, other than what appears to be a pale, white smiling mask permanently fused to the skin of his head. It looks like he has a purposely deformed mannequin head stuck on his body, hence the name Manny. Somehow no one else has ever noticed him. Usually people write me off as mental whenever I mention him, which is why I avoid talking about him to others. When I saw him sitting on my couch like he owned the damn thing, my instinctive reaction was to get mad. I yelled something obscene and pounced on the couch with the intent to maul him with my hands. What came next scared the living hell out of me. I hit the couch and it flipped over, but the bastard was gone. He disappeared to me before reappearing behind me and letting out this distinctive high-pitched chuckle of his. He said that he was going to play with me like a marionette and then vanished again. I just sat there, flat on my ass, scared out of my wits. I had no clue what the hell had just happened to me. I'm still not entirely sure. It's been years now and many comes and goes. Whenever he shows up, I know it'll be one heck of a ride. He pops up and does his best to make my life hell. Not letting me sleep by being an incredibly loud unwanted roommate or by driving me nuts with his mostly moronic rants just before I go to sleep. Other times he shows up and just makes me feel like shit by giving me vivid accounts of horrible, horrible things about me and the world. His recollections feel as if he's feeding the imagery directly into my brain. I can quite see the horrors he's speaking of. Needless to say, that makes me feel terrible. I think he can even influence my dreams at this point. I swear, whenever I have a nightmare, I wake up to him standing on the edge of my bed, staring straight into my soul. Usually, these nightmares I think he gives me are events from my past 
amplified and perverted into haunting scenes straight out of some horror flick. Other times, these nightmares are just distressingly weird things you'd not expect to see in your sleep. Like that one time when he made me dream of me viewing black and white footage of what appears the main street of some city devoid of people with this dramatic music playing in the background. The atmosphere of this whole thing felt incredibly off, but then came the truly terrifying part. Singing, quite a cheerful singing came to flood my ears, forcing me to look around for the source of the sound. My dream self looked up, and above it, me. Hung women dressed in twenties outfits, swinging from the streetlights, lifeless, swaying softly in the wind and yet singing, cheerfully. I woke up in a cold sweat to be greeted by the pallid mug of that bastard. Over the years he'd pull some nasty trick, where he'd stand there in the distance, making sure I see him before pulling out the long black rod and... and... stabbing himself. Somehow. As in with some voodoo magic. I'd feel it whenever he stabbed himself. Usually, the leg. It hurts so bad whenever he does this. He seems to have this gleeful expression on his face, like he's enjoying the pain, while I want to scream as a result of the sensation of a boiling hot metal rod slicing through my nerves. The first time was as shocking as hell. I've bitten so hard into my lip due to the pain, I now have a scar there as a reminder of that day. Unfortunately, I've come to accept that as part of my experience with Manny. That's not even the worst of it. The worst part about Manny, however, isn't this sort of stuff. Nah, the worst part is when he pops out of nowhere and lets out a thunderous roar into my ear before vanishing again. Whenever he does this, I tense up like crazy. It's akin to having a cannon shot going off right next to you. Sometimes I stay tensed up for hours, others... He goes away in minutes. After each encounter with Manny, regardless of what he does, I end up being stressed, vigilant, and aggressive, and above all else, exhausted. Sometimes to the point of wanting to just throw myself off somewhere high. That's definitely affected me in worse ways than one, hence why I mostly isolate myself from others. He's trying to ruin my life, I'm sure. I don't know why me... I didn't do anything wrong. I've always loved helping people. I didn't put on the uniform for the pay. I only ever wanted to do some good, you know. The closest I could be to being a superhero, I guess. Well, I was sure he was trying to mess up with me. Up until tonight. This time, it was different. He woke me up by shaking my body awake. Seeing his ugly mug before, even fully waking up, gave me that adrenaline kick. I punched him square in the head, although my fist never connected. It just went straight through his head. Hey, hold up, Don. As I pulled my hand backwards, cursing under my breath. I'm here to help you. He continued. I didn't believe him. He was just trying to mess with me again, I reasoned. So I tried ignoring him and going back to sleep. I shrugged him off and pulled the blanket tightly over my head. He shook me again. Oi, Dolly, get up. This time I'm here to help Pinky Promise. Fuck off! 
I barked, trying to drown his presence out of my head with some pleasant memories. Shh. He shushed me. Something was wrong with that statement. Usually there are no others involved in his cruel jokes. I pulled the blanket from my head and looked him dead into his empty marks. What are you talking about? He mouthed, Quiet down your tone. Huh? I questioned, confused and genuinely pissed off at this point. There are three mannequins in your house. They don't mean no good, Dolly. He whispered, Bullshit! I barked back with a whisper. I didn't even know why I was whispering, really. Listen for yourself, Dolly. Manny hissed, pointing at where his ears should have been. I did as he said. It was dead silent. I was going to throw another fit at the creature that's been haunting me for the last few years, but then my thought process was cut short by the sound of footsteps. Two, four, six. My heartbeat sped up. I slowly got out of my bed, walked towards the bedroom door. I always kept it locked even though I live alone. It's like an OCD thing. I stood by the door and listened. Someone was definitely walking around in my house. Three people, in fact. They were saying things I couldn't understand. They were too quiet. My breath was becoming shallow and my body was getting hot. I could feel my own temperature slightly rising. Told ya. Manny whispered. I just stared at him, and he took a step back. That had never happened before. Some switch inside flipped, and the bastards smiled at me. I just kept listening to what was happening outside the room. The pallid bastard opened up a closet and pulled out my two baseball bats before telling me to pick one. He knew what was going through my head. He knew exactly what I was going to do. I took one of the bats, the black one. It felt nice in my hand. Manny vanished. I cranked my neck and the door handle twisted. The door to my room swung open. Before me stood a literal mannequin. I could almost hear something snap inside. It didn't expect me to be awake. I moved swiftly, expertly, nearly took its head off with the bat. The sound of cracking thick plastic boomed in my ears. The mannequin collapsed to the floor. I went out to the hall. Another mannequin stood with its back to me. This one white. I think there was something attached to its plastic hand. I took a swing to its back and it bent in half before collapsing on all fours. A second hit to the back of the head. It wasn't moving anymore. The third one saw me, a brown one. It ran towards the front door. I followed. It wasn't going to get out just like that. I caught up to it. It started making pleading movements with his arms. Ugly piece of shit. I slammed the bat on top of it. I swung once, twice, thrice. I swung over and over again. Even after it was crumpled on the floor, with many parts collapsed on themselves. Once I was done with the third mannequin, Manny popped up again. Tie him up and dump him in the garage for now. I did just that. I wasn't even thinking on my own. I was on autopilot. Good thing the front door was unlocked. The adrenaline wore off quickly. 
and I was exhausted once more, a completely worn out man. I headed up back to my bed almost as if nothing had happened. I was pretty docile and relatively calm after that. I passed out on the spot pretty much. Manny was nowhere in sight, thank God. I slept like a baby. Waking up this morning, I remembered what had happened the night before, and my mind raced again, forcing me to feel like the world would collapse on top of me if I didn't check the garage. The moment I got out of my bed, cortisol filled my system up once more. I noticed a massive bloodstain on the floor. Since when do mannequins bleed? Barricade. I'm about to do a very stupid thing. I know it's stupid, I know it. But I don't think I have a choice anymore. And I have to do it now, while I have the nerve and the will, while my hands are still steady. I'm sick. I've always been sick. Some days are better than others. When I was young, my parents prayed that it might just be a precursor of the onset of epilepsy. But the seizures never came. I just can't trust myself. I see things. On some days I can hear them and smell them too. I should say that I used to see them, after being on every possible combination of pills three doctors could come up with. I thought we'd finally found the right chemical key for my misfiring brain. It's been six years of stability and relative normalcy. Trading a halfway house for a tiny studio apartment, a collection of mostly tolerable side effects, and a steady job. I realize this probably sounds dull for most people, but I cherished every moment of that achingly simple monotony. It went bad all at once. Friday morning. I awake from the first dream I've had in years. A vivid phantasmagoria of colors and sounds and begrudgingly left my perfect and sterile clean apartment for the short walk to work. I notice that as soon as the elevator opens, the unearthly stillness and silence in the heavy air the front door of the complex is hanging open, unlocked and swinging gently. The faintest trace of smoke drifting inward in the damp breeze. Outside the wide streets are empty and bare. My mouth is suddenly dry and I rock back on my heels, cresting a crippling wave of panic and deja vu. This particular hallucination, the quiet and the smoke and the emptiness, was always my most frequent. I haven't had it in six years, but the familiarity of it stings. I shut my eyes tightly and jab my hand at the panels of chip buttons. Moments later, I am on the top floor, walking half blind the path to my door with practiced familiarity. Once inside, I sit on my bed, gripping tight the handle of my cane, eyes closed, breathing slowly and steady, focused, calm, clear. I open my eyes. I can't be outside like this. I know this. I was hit by a car when I was homeless, wandering dazed into the street, while my fevered mind saw only emptiness. I'll need a replacement hip before I'm 40. I can hear the slivers of bone grind a little with every labored step. I call my boss and leave a terse message apologizing for being too ill to work today. I hold my breath as I open the one tiny window in my studio. It's so close to the building next to me. I can almost touch its brick wall. I can't see the street from this height and angle, but as I strain to lean out the window, sound of yelling and a few whining engines drift up to me. The pall of unearthly quiet is broken. 
and I feel a great sense of relief, knowing that my episode is over. I am counting the pills in orderly columns on the table, proving a fifth time to myself that I have taken my daily regimen. When I start to hear the screaming, it builds from far below, riding the struts and supports of the tower until it seems to emanate from the bones of the building. An hour later, the sounds seem like they're right outside. Horrid, terrified, incoherent clumps of half-formed words. And please, punctuated by wet, ragged shrieks and heavy muffled thudding. The breathing and relaxation exercises aren't helping. And I'm gripping the edge of my bed, soaked in sweat. The idea appears fully formed in my mind. I need to barricade the door. I struggle to suppress it. It would be like giving up. All progress I've made would be for naught if I entertain the notion that the episode is real. But the screaming. This is a new one for me. There's the shuffle of movement outside, and the doorknob of the door twists violently and shudders against the deadbolt. I try to cry out, but my throat is parched and only a dry croak comes out. The door starts to flex slightly, as heavy blows land on the outside and a mad, gibbering chorus of voices spits out a strange nonsense of broken syllables. It only takes me a moment to decide now. I burst to my feet and throw all my weight into the bookshelf, crashing into it with bright white bolt of pain. It topples slowly, leaning at first like a tree and then smashing to the ground. On top of the bookshelf goes my desk and chairs, my hips screaming with each step. I collapse again on the floor, grasping for breath, and listen to the pounding subside, and the horrid voices retreat. That was two days ago. They come back every day and scratch at the door, whispering in that vile gibberish. Sometimes I allow myself to think I can recognize the voices. The phone is dead, and the power is out. When I lean out the window and yell for help, the only answer I get is the occasional shriek of ululating babble. When I was younger, when I was at my worst, my episode would last for hours at most. I am at a loss. I have very little food left and the water pressure has already dropped. Lying in bed in the late summer heat in a moment of near total silence, the inevitability of it occurs to me. If I stay, I'll starve. What happens to me on the other side of the barricade only depends on how sick I really am. I want to believe with a sudden desire I am just ill, simply and profoundly ill. The seriousness of it wells up in me, and I suddenly feel awake and lucid. I need a doctor, surely, but soon the hallucination will lift and my mind will heal. I just need to break through this. I need to go outside. I remove the bookshelf slowly, rotating it away from the door gently to rest with the other furniture. This is right, I assure myself. This is healthy. I turn the deadbolt, put my hand on the handle, and try to suppress the rising terror in my guts. I give it a little pressure. Outside, I hear a dry shuffling and the low-rising murmur of unfathomable voices, and my surety drains from me, leaving only cold and naked horror in its place. My hand is on the door. I'm about to do a very stupid think. Well, listeners, I'm sitting here, relaxing, and taking in both these stories. 
I really like the originality that Bloody Spaghetti's narrative brought to us. The little twist at the end was short and sweet with a quick realization. Nothing over the top and very well balanced. Pacing was really good. Manny's attitude and voice was just enough to keep us interested and snappy enough to know that something wasn't right. All around a great story. And Barricade, the tale of reality or perspective being warped, senses being manipulated and how mental illness can create a prison in your mind where even going outside is an ordeal. I really enjoyed the emotion that this story brings and how as you read the story you begin to understand more and more of what this person is enduring and despite grappling with the fact that they know it's an episode, they still are unable to shake off the undeniable auditory and visual hallucinations their mind is creating, a struggle for certain and one that I'm not sure he wins in the end. Mates, I hope your Friday is going fantastically and hopefully it's going to get that much better with some custom stories. Let's jump in with my Ode Nighty Titan Tales. Maya, the marionette maker of Birchwood. In the small town of Birchwood is a house black in color and whose doorsteps are covered in ash. And at first it appears not through any nefarious means that the house was burned down alongside multiple other houses in the eastern part of this small town. The house itself was unique and owned by a long deceased man by the name of Mr. Henkin. Mr. Henkin was a brilliant craftsman, creating dancing marionette dolls for the children, for over 40 years in fact. But he had no children himself, and his wife passed years ago. During the fires that engulfed Birchwood, the house was the only one standing, untouched by flame, not a lick by a stray tongue of fire to set it alight. This house was burned though, after the fires were snuffed out, for this house held a darkness within, and a horror that Birchwood would forever hide. Henkin would routinely seek materials for his wires and strings to attach to his dolls, originally using cotton, then using plastics, and as the price went up for these materials, he struggled to make a profit. He began robbing people, dead people, digging up children's graves and using their hair to create dolls, weaving someone's dead daughter's hair into a gift set, using their nails for polished toy forks and knives. This man was walking into the realm of super creepy and the marionettes he made were seen as effigies instead of toys by the town. Once this was discovered, over 40 bodies were stored in his basement and the internals of the house was sealed heavily to mitigate the smell of the rotting bodies. A chemical trick applied to Mr. Henkin's toys and then to his place of work with great effect. To this day, the house remains a monument of madness and within it, hundreds of marionettes made from the children's hair of Birchwood, a ghoulish testament to a man who operated in a world of his own. Solstra, Sporatic Misjuncture As a small child, Lucy loved walking through the streams, barefoot and all, picking up daisies, singing to herself, and looking for animals that would live in the forest to befriend and care for. During her routine walks, she stumbled across a hovel that held within it a red mushroom with tree roots beneath it, she thought it was odd looking and even stranger when it began to speak. It warned her of the dangers in the forest, that not all is as it seems, that what she seeks beyond this path leads to danger and grief. Lucy, not knowing the way of the world and not having tasted the pain of loss or agony of grief, ignored these warnings. But if she had listened, she may have had a chance to escape. For Lucy had walked into a throng of spores produced by Salocybe cubensis, spores of madness. 
She wandered the forest, talking to trees and whispering to herself that the possibility to escape her prison was at hand. She was unaware of how little she had moved in the time she first ingested the spores, and during that ordeal, she began to panic, running from tree to tree, faces appearing in tree trunks, tree limbs reaching out, and all pushing her to a horrible end, slipping down a ravine and into the depths of the caves below, never to be seen again. Her mind had been addled, and had she listened to the voice, the voice in her own head, she could have avoided the field of fungi, and those mushrooms would have one less victim. Mates, thank you both for supporting this podcast and me. This level of support is always jaw-dropping to me, mates. Thank you so much. Your first story explored the idea that the mind finds a way to justify and create opportunities, no matter how crazy they sound, in order to survive. And the second story explores the idea that the concept of being mad is impossible to diagnose once you become mad, and often with dire consequences. Hope you enjoyed these stories, mates. And now for my white tea warlords, I own cows, keepsake. John is a hermit whose life revolved around keeping as little as possible with him. He had a aversion to noise and enjoyed living a solitary life. The lack of a companion never bothered him, and the requirement of a large bed or clean clothes was a luxury, and one that he never needed, living freely, holistically, washing his clothes in lakes or rivers, and his cutlery were rocks and branches. Life was free and joyous, until he found his keepsake. Digging through the branches and trees of a nearby lake, he came across a small box keepsake, and within it he found nothing but black tea. Emptying it foolishly, John used it to store any tools he found, sharp rocks and rags. Everything was normal until nightfall, where he was unable to sleep, constantly hearing a very low ticking sound that would creep in, like a snake, slipping insidiously into his ear and residing there. Days and days of this incessant noise drove him to madness, unable to understand where the noise came from and why. All can be explained, as there was a mechanism in the keepsake that upon placing weight inside it, began to play music. The problem was, the mechanism was broken and just continued to tick, tick away, furiously. This sound, compounded with his desperation for peace and quiet, saw him run blindly into the woods to tumble down a hill where he lived, snapping his neck upon the large oak tree he once used to camp by. His aversion to sound addled his mind and led to his death. Lee Bauer, Whisper Thoughts. Owen was an easygoing guy, an observant guy, and great friends with Barry, a college classmate of his. Now, over the months, he noticed that Barry, whilst attending his commerce classes, had seemed more pressured than usual. He began to watch Barry over a number of weeks more closely, and he began to observe, or rather realize, Barry had developed a strange behavior. He began skipping classes, began avoiding people altogether, and especially large crowds. Owen noticed also that he was whispering to himself, at first inaudibly, only mouthing words but soon he began rambling full sentences. Owen began seeing less and less of Barry, and his behavior was escalating into some seriously dangerous territory. Owen knew it didn't take a genius to figure out what was just around the corner. He did report it and measures were taken, but he couldn't predict what he would find and the ordeal that awaited him just beyond his dorm room. He would never have seen it coming. No one would. Screams echoed at 1am in the dorm hallway. 
Barry covered in blood and three of his classmates slaughtered. Turns out that Barry never had any mental illness, at least to start off with. In fact, he had been manipulated into losing his mind. As three students were playing a prank on him, placing small microphones around his room and whispering to him over the course of four months, pushing his mind to its limits. When they took Barry away, he was shaking, and all he could say was, These are my thoughts. These are my thoughts. Thank you both, you brilliant people, for supporting this podcast. Today your tales are very different to what I usually do. I explored the idea of gradual mental degradation and the deterioration of the mind through external forces in both these stories. What it takes for the mind to crack and splinter, to drive someone mad. I took some inspiration, of course, from the Edgar Allan Poe story, The Telltale Heart. Either way, I hope you both enjoy these stories. And of course, my lovely Grain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Crescento, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, and Dolphin and Cow. Thank you, little lovely, so much for supporting this podcast and me. Every episode I try and improve at least a little bit, and I've been receiving some really good feedback over the past month from you lovelies. So thank you all for your kind words. If you get some spare time this weekend, swing on by my Patreon page and take a look at what I have on offer as rewards for those that support the show. From shoutouts to custom stories written just for you lovelies and also custom artwork made just for you, which is one of my favorite things to do. You can find my Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt. And thank you for taking the time, mates, for listening. Have a kick-ass Friday and an epic weekend, mates. And I can't wait to catch you Monday for more tales. Join me next time, you little lovelies. And as always, till next week.